Well, welcome again to City Life Suffix. Good to see all your faces here today. Uh, if this is your first, second, or third time, like Nate said, hey, welcome. It's good to see you here. Maybe you've been coming here for a couple weeks. Maybe you've been coming for a couple months. Maybe you've been coming for a couple years, and you've still got questions. Why do we do what we do? How do we do what we do? I wish I could just sit down with the pastor and some of the elders for a couple hours and just chat it up. Well, guess what? Good news. One of those nights is coming up in just a couple weeks on June 4th. After service, we're having what we call Discover City Life, and uh, that's where it's just going to be the Nawatneys, uh, myself and my wife, we're going to provide food, dinner, because I know we get out of this, out more about City Life, finding out more about membership. Uh, you can grab Amy on the way out. Amy and Jason Kearney are at the info table, and you can sign up through them, but it'll be a great night of, of not only you getting to know the church, but us getting to know you better, the faces we see every week that have become a part, really, of our family. So I encourage you, if that's you, check that out, but if if You've been coming for the last two weeks. It's been a good couple weeks anyways, because we're, last week we had our first ever welcome weekend, which is where we just welcome people in and let you know about what city life is, why we do what we do. Last week we talked about the one, the six, the 12, and the 24, our discipleship pathways. And if all those numbers mean nothing to you, then that just means you should check out the podcast on citylifeva.com slash Suffolk. But last week we talked about our discipleship track here at City Life. But tonight I want to talk about some of our greatest hits. So if you're taking notes, the sermon title is simply Greatest Hits, because we're going to be talking about new treasures and old treasures tonight at City Life. And uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But if we could start, can I start by reading the word? Can we start with a little scripture? Sweet. Cool. So if you've got your Bible, you can pull it out, turn it to Psalm 27. If you've got you version on your phone, you can swipe to Psalm 27. If you're looking at me like I got nothing under your chair in those pews are Bibles that you can use. But we're going to turn to Psalm 27, verses 4 through 8, and then verses 13 through 14. Psalm 27, 4 through 8, 13 through 14. I want to say just the, the last few verses I'll have up here on the screen, but I'm going to read all of those verses in their entirety. And David starts in verse 4. He says, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. I love this verse. It says, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. And then verse 13 and 14, it says, I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. Before we go any further, I just want to pray. Lord God, this verse encourages us to, to wait for you. God, we're just saying that, that we're not moving. We want to hear from you. We want to experience a move of your spirit. God, we want to experience, God, your word speaking to us where we're at. God, I thank you that your word is inexhaustible. God, that it speaks to every situation. And God, I pray tonight through your word and the Holy Spirit working in me, God, that everybody would leave with a fresh impartation. Everybody would leave walking closer to you than they did before. God, at the end of this service, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We love you, Jesus. We pray that you would speak tonight. And everybody said, amen. So church in the, in the 21st century is funny because a lot of you guys I haven't seen this week talk to a couple of you on the phone, but I feel like because of social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, 
that there's been interactions going on and in life that can rob us of legitimate interactions. You'd be like, oh yeah, I've caught up with you. And then you realize, no, I've just been reading your Facebook posts and statuses. But there is a benefit because there's some people in life I will never probably have a one-on-one interaction with. Athletes, pastors, um, musicians, where I'm never going to just sit down and be like, hey, how was your week? And get to talk about it. But because of things like Twitter these days, you can get updates on what's happening with people you'll never meet. For instance, the quarterback of the Washington Redskins, his name is Kirk Cousins. Yes, we got a fan. <laughs> His name is Kirk Cousins, and, and the season isn't going or anything, but they're coming back together now. They're lifting together. And he tweeted the other day, and ESPN took it and run with it, and a lot of uh, networks took it and ran with it because what he said was this. He said, today the Creed Greatest Hits album was played during the team lift. Today was a good day. Now, if you don't know who Creed is, they were a band that was making music when I was late high school in the early 2000s, late 90s, and some of it was, was good. The rest of it was kind of, is there, are there any Creed fans in here? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Some of it was corny. Some of it was good. They, they rocked, you know, the, the leather pants, the long hair. So it was just like this stereotype, and it's like frowned upon to like Creed, even though, you know, people like Creed. The only thing that might be frowned upon more is if he would have said we listened to Nickelback's, all their albums, and enjoyed it thoroughly. It was a good day. But uh, what I love is there was no shame in that tweet. And, and I can admit that after I read that tweet and, and worked it into my sermon, I might have listened to my own prison, their first album, while polishing my sermon. So some of your expectations just took a nosedive for what the sermon's going to be like tonight. But speaking of greatest hits... Just as a moment of participation, is there an artist whose greatest hits you've, you own and you just listen to it again and again? Keith Green. That's a good answer. That's, your, that's my daddy's worship music. Who else? Al Green. Nice. Yup. Tyler. Led Zeppelin. Van Morrison. Journey. Nice. GNR. Anybody else? The Eagles, nice. My, uh, I don't think I have many. The greatest hits album I've listened to probably more than any is Jodeci, and that tells you a lot about myself. That's kind of frowned upon just like Creed, but in the R&B circuit, right? <laughs> Good music and corny music. But uh, it's funny because back, this is a rabbit trail, but you remember CDs. You would have their entire catalog, but you can't just buy certain songs like you do now on iTunes. So what they would do is they release the greatest hits album. You have those songs already, but then they put like two or three new songs at the end. So you still had to buy it if you wanted those songs. You could just go on iTunes and purchase them. But uh, that's just me venting frustrations from my, my teenage years. But uh, anybody want to guess what the five greatest selling greatest hits albums are? The greatest of the greatest hits? The Eagles. Yes, that's one of them. The Beatles is also one of them. They've got ones for like different time periods. There's 67 to 70 albums, actually, their highest selling. What about solo artists? You guys nailed all the, uh, wasn't on the top five list. Mariah Carey, no. No, not Josh Groban. <laughs> What's that? Prince? No. Elvis? No. Marvin Gaye? No. Elton John was one of them. Billy Joel, another, and then finally Madonna. So she actually has the highest selling greatest hits album of all time. Probably the last one I'd listen to out of those five. But uh, last week, as I was preaching, I said the phrase, as we like to say here at City Life, and I, I laughed at it. Some of us laughed at it. I said it repeatedly, and I didn't really give an explanation, and some of you were probably like, what is he even talking about? As we like to say here at City Life, that is what you could call a, a Fredism. 
Yeah. Pastor Fred is our Newport News campus pastor. He's pastored there for years and years, almost a decade. And when he says, as we like to say here at City Life, that means you're about to get like a nugget that gets passed around at City Life a lot. It is a treasured truth. It's a vital part of our vision, or it's just one of our greatest hits. It's a teaching we like to say a lot. Sometimes they'll say it and you'll be like, I don't think we've ever said that at City Life. And that's when you're just like, you start texting each other. Have we ever said that? But, but uh, that's what Pastor Fred likes to say here at City Life is as we like to say here at City Life. But in Matthew 13, 52, he pulls this from here. In Matthew, Matthew 13, 52, sorry, goodbye, Kirk Cousins. Says Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasures things new and old. See, when we talk about this house, this church, when you get down to the bottom of the line, it's God's. God doesn't build it. We all are laboring in vain. We're meeting right now in vain if God isn't the head of this. But in the same way, we hope to be faithful heads of this household. This is our home. But if you're dwelling in the house of God where he's moving, you'll have old treasures, things that, ways that he's moved that we're never going to let go of. But there's also going to be new treasures. There's going to be fresh vision, fresh focus, fresh styles. You look at God from the throne in Revelation. He says, behold, I make all things new. And then you read through the Bible, you see new wine, new creations, new Jerusalem, new songs, new mercies, and more throughout Scripture. And then when God took on flesh as Jesus, he was so rejected and scorned because he made so many things fresh and new. He turned things on their head. And in Mark 2, verse 12, the people say, we never saw anything like this. Well, that's our desire as a church. Not so that people can, can talk about city life, but so they can talk about God. I've never seen God move in this way through, through worship and the word. Our prayer is a lot like Habakkuk 3.2 where he says, help us again as you did in years gone by. You know, the goal is always the same. Again, that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the form sometimes changes. It's like sports where you have different plays to score the same basket. It's the same goal. And every new treasure, when you talk about new treasures and old treasures, every new treasure doesn't become a classic. It doesn't become one of the greatest hits. It doesn't become an old treasure. And just to, as an example, my wife this past week, shot me a text. She's like, here's a picture of these lockers. She was at a consignment shop. They're actually pretty dope. They're in our, our dining room now. There's like two sides and then one over the top. And she was like, it's an X amount of money. Can we spend that? Can we get that? I was like, sure. So some of them were locked. We don't have the key. These are lockers from the 70s. So she starts breaking into the lockers. And has anybody ever heard of Thalheimers? Thalheimers? Sorry. Tall. Tall. Hard T-H. Thalheimers. I had to, like, look it up on Wikipedia. Apparently before Macy's, which just a lot of them flopped. Before that was, what was it, Hex? Yeah, I, used to, I remember that from my childhood. And then before that was Tallheimers. Tallheimers. Well, these are lockers from Tallheimers. There's a seat in there from, like, the 70s. So there's all kinds of stuff in there. Some stuff that, that held its value and some stuff that didn't. For instance, in one of the lockers, well, here's, I don't even know why I brought these. These is an unopened pack of Virginia Slims from the 70s. No filter. Hashtag no filter. Fritos from the 70s. John, you're in youth ministry, so you want these? You can make a kid eat these. You know what I'm saying? That can be a challenge. Who wants to eat 40-year-old Fritos? Anybody want to do it now for five bucks? <laughs> like, somebody paid money for that. That had value in the 70s. But now I couldn't pay you to take them and eat them. But then also in another locker, 
there was a, a, a very real treasure, something that held its value. There was a gold earring. So you had things that no longer hold their value, and then there were things in those lockers that timeless. Gold is timeless. It still holds its value. And you can look at things in the church that are the same way. Like you look at worship music. I could listen to the song, Come Thou Fount, every day till the day I die. I would never get old of it, right? It would never get old to me. At the same time, I love Hillsong, love the music. But I, if I never heard My Redeemer lives until I stopped living and saw My Redeemer, if I never heard it again, I'd be cool with that. And sometimes the new treasures in church, it is a new song. You know, David talks about sing a new song. A lot of what we do at City Life is modern. If you're talking about the electric drums, for instance, the electric guitars, the backing tracks, the big screen TVs projecting the words. But when you talk about expressive worship, you talk about impassioned praise, you talk about the use of instruments and a band and even loud volumes, that's ancient. That's biblical. There was a group of Levites that basically was a band that led worship for the Israelites wherever they went. David in Psalm 33 verse 3 says, sing to him a new song. Again, you talk about new treasures. Play skillfully with a loud noise. You know, our goal in worship, it's not to be an alternative to the world. We're never going to make music that sounds like Creed or, or anything that's in the top 40. Hopefully not. I rebuke it. But, uh, <laughs> but rabbit trail, we're not trying to give an alternative to the world. We're trying to continue to represent what worship has been in the Bible, expressive, passionate, lifting of hands, clapping of hands, wakening the dawn, except we're awakening the evening here on Saturday nights. But again, the form might change, but the goal stays the same. Instruments, techniques, the songs might change, but still the goal is to praise and exalt Jesus no matter what year it is, no matter what generation is doing it. So there's new treasures and there's old treasures, but tonight I just want to talk about Three old treasures, three of our greatest hits that inform our message as City Life, what we talk about, and our mission as City Life, the things we do. Because your church should have both, both a message and a mission. And those three things are this, the goodness of God, the centrality of the church, and the potential of people. So tonight, I think I'm only going to get through the first two realistically, and then we'll probably hit on the potential of people extensively next week. But I just want to hit on the goodness of God the centrality of the church, and the potential of people, because that shapes everything we do here at City Life. So the first thing is the goodness of God. And one of the key verses in our church that, that again, it's used so much, it could be a fretism, because we quote it so often. It's Psalm 27, 13, which we read when we opened, where David says this, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. You start talking about the goodness of God, have a conversation long enough, a word that might come up is favor. Now, when you hear the word favor in the context of the church, what are some things you, you think about or things that come to mind? Anything? Financial, money, health. Yeah. I said Alf for a second. <laughs> Opportunities. Yeah. Jobs. Favor ain't fair. Name it, claim it, right? <laughs> Prosperity, gospel, all these ways that people take favor and run with it, especially when you start talking about the prosperity gospel that you might call it or name it, claim it. Then all of a sudden you think, well, should I chase after favor? Like, like what is favor even? But it's not prideful to say you have the favor of God. I would say it's the opposite. It's prideful not to say you have the favor of God. 
You look at Psalm 124 where Israel is just recounting their history. They're saying, if God wasn't with us, in their words, they say, had the Lord not been on our side in this situation, in this situation, and in this situation, they go through a list, we would have been toast. That's the juice version. But basically they're saying, if God hadn't been with us, if we didn't have the favor of God, we would have never lasted. And that's a revelation we all need to come to, that I'm weak. So what God's calling me to, I better have his favor in my life. But a second revelation we need is that if we walk in the grace of God, we walk in the favor of God. There's three very practical ways that we walk in God's favor every morning when we step out of bed. And this is an entire sermon for another week. But those three things are the purpose for God, presence of God, and provision from God. We have a purpose for God every morning we wake up. We don't walk and twiddle our thumbs and wait for going to heaven without any meaning, without any purpose, without any destiny. God has given us those things. He's given us a purpose, and that's part of his favor. The second is the presence of God. Being able to come into his presence like tonight, but like every moment, every day, where we can step into the throne room of God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit available to us. That's the favor of God that we walk in every day. And then provision from God, whether it's the next breath you take, or the car you take from point A to point B, however ugly or loud it might be, that is provision from God. But you know, God's favor doesn't always fit our framework. His goodness doesn't always fit our, our mental grid. Sometimes we miss it, especially when you talk about favor as, as the prosperity gospel. You look at Mark 10.30, which I want to look at real quick. It is a prosperity gospel, but a, but a prosperity with persecutions gospel. In Mark 10. Verse 30, Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're like, hey, we sacrificed all of this to follow you. And Jesus is reassuring them. He says, nobody who sacrificed these things won't receive 100 times more. Now at this time, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. You get this glimpse of heaven now, heaven forever, which we talk about all the time at City Life, that God wants to bless our lives with favor here, that he wants to whet our appetite with heaven as we walk out our lives here in the church, that he wants to give us purpose, his presence and provision in this life, and then that there's an eternal life in the age to come, heaven now, heaven forever. But I love that he sandwiches those two words in there with persecutions, just slides it right on in like we might not even catch it. But we're going to have trouble. We live in a fallen world where broken people break things, where hurt people hurt people, where it's just a broken world. Things happen. You look at Psalm 27, where we find our core verse about God's goodness and our expectation for God's goodness. You look at Psalm 27 as a whole. It's a plea for God's presence in the midst of persecution. Something David understood about the goodness of God that, that we have to understand is that we can't confuse God's character with life's complications. David didn't confuse God's character with life's conflict, the complications, the bad things that would happen. And he very well could have. If you know his story, he was anointed to be the next king at 16. But for the next 14 years, didn't experience any of that. It was the complete opposite, hiding in caves so he wouldn't be caught and killed. He hid out with the, the enemy, pretending to be crazy, drooling on his beard so that they wouldn't find him out and nobody would find him and kill him for 14 years. Come on, you think he ever doubted God's goodness? But you read Psalm 27. He says, I remain confident of this. I'll see the goodness of God in the land of the living. David had a clear belief that he would be delivered in this life. That it wasn't just the goodness 
to come in the next, but there was goodness God wanted to experience in this life. He said, I'm still confident. Why would you have to say you're still confident? Because what's around you isn't inspiring confidence in and of itself. His confidence in God's goodness wasn't based on circumstance. David didn't have a contract faith where I'll believe if you keep treating me well. He went through some some mess, but he realized God's goodness transcended circumstance. God's character transcends life complications. You know, basing your faith on circumstance and what happens around you instead of God's unchanging character is a sure way to cripple it sooner than later. Don't confuse God with life. His character with life's complications. We tend to think that life should be fair and just because God is just, right? Because that's his character. Shouldn't life be like that? But God is not life. (laughs) Matter of fact, you read, this is another sermon for another day. You read the Bible, God is love. Part of the, the ethic of love is that we have free will, but we don't always wield it well. Again, broken people, breaking things around them, hurting other people. We don't always wield it well. But the test to see if you have the heart of David who was still confident in the goodness of God, still believed in the goodness of God is, do you believe that God is in control when nothing is going your way? We're just in a season where striking out again and again. Maybe it's not even your fault. Things are happening to you again and again. Do you still believe that God is in control, that he's sovereign, and that he loves you? Do you believe God is good even when bad things keep happening? If you can't answer yes to those, then you'll stay stunted in your growth and in your relationship with God. But when you truly grasp God's goodness, it changes everything. You know, I encountered God as a senior at William & Mary. I've told that story a bunch of times, but probably about a month after the Resonate Conference where I just got shook and gave my life to God, they had something called an encounter weekend, which is where you go to the church Friday night through Saturday, and you're just with a bunch of people pursuing God together. And one of the practices they had us do is to draw like a timeline of our lives with the peaks and the valleys and and all the ups and downs and to just share that with each other and and how we found God in them. So I'm 20 years old. I grew up, my parents took me to church and then I went to high school and college. So mine looked like this. You know, parents raised me, high school and college, compromised a bunch, suffered the consequences. And then I found Jesus and my life's kind of going up. So me, it was like boom, boom, boom. But some of these guys I was there with for the weekend in their 50s, in their 60s, sharing about how they'd been through broken marriages, sharing about how they'd struggled with this addiction or that addiction. And and theirs, I was done with mine in like a minute. 15 minutes later, they've got like three pages taped together. And I would share mine in about a minute, but they would share for like 15. And it was a lesson to me that, you know what? In my life, there's gonna be ups and downs. These guys believed in Jesus. They were pursuing God, but their life had ups and downs. But the lesson I realized that I would, remind myself again and again in life is that the horizontal timeline of your life, it'll be marked with many seasons. But your vertical focus on God will help you hit the mark in any season. Again, the horizontal timeline of your life, when you step back and look at it at the end of your days, it's going to be marked by ups and downs. But if you stay focused on God and the goodness of God, it'll help you hit the mark in any season. Just because you're in a valley doesn't mean you'll have to miss the mark in life. If you can trust in the goodness of God, Focus on what's right with God because this around us is temporal. But that reality, God's goodness is eternal, doesn't change. You know, Romans 8, 28, we've all heard it if we've been in church for any amount of time, that God will work all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. But if you're a human being, 
you've ever been going through a mess <laughs> where bad things are happening, and you read that verse, what's your first impulse, your first question? How? How? How is all this going to be worked for good? That's like the first thing that my mind will jump to in seasons where nothing good is happening, and then I read that verse. How? But what I try to jump to is the verse just verses later in verse 35, where Paul says this in 8.35. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? You realize as you read this, this was Paul's life perspective. This wasn't just some list he came up with while he was writing this letter just out the back of his head. This is stuff he went through. Persecution, threatened by death. He was stoned. They left him for dead. This is all stuff Paul went through for the gospel, but he endured these trials because these Things didn't obstruct his view of God and God's goodness and God's love. He didn't confuse God's character with life's complications that were going to come. But you know what? No matter your circumstance, God's love hasn't left. His goodness hasn't run out. The goodness of God needs to be louder in our lives than the circumstances that we go through in our lives. And this trust serves you well in the long run because, again, I get tortured in moments where I'm thinking, how is God going to work this for good? But if I can trust that he's sovereign, that he loves me, and he's good, then I don't need to know what's coming next or why it's coming because I know God knows the how. God knows the why he's going to work it together. I don't need an explanation for every disappointment because I know God has a plan. If I can just trust in his goodness and look at what's eternal over what's temporal, if I stop focusing on what's wrong in my season and focus on what's right with God, because again, whatever season you're in, that's temporal. But God's goodness is eternal, never changes. I don't you guys know this is easier said than done. Keeping that perspective is easier said than done. David, as he writes Psalm 27, it's like he leaves us with advice in the last verse where he says, Be strong, take heart, wait on the Lord. As if it's three bits of advice. Be strong, take heart, and wait on the Lord. If be strong and take heart, if that sounds familiar, those same verbs are used in the Hebrew, excuse me, for when Joshua encourages the Israelites and God encourages Joshua, be strong and courageous and take the promised land. The same verbs are used here by David when he says, be strong and take heart and trust in God's goodness. Because how many of you guys know when the Israelites were getting ready to take the promised land, this generation had been wandering in the desert, basically suffering, not because of their own sin, but because of the suffering or the, the sin of the generation before them. For years, for years on years on years. Again, if anybody could doubt God's goodness, these people could because they've been wandering through the desert, not receiving what was promised, not because of their sin, but the people before them. But David's saying, hey, don't confuse God's character with life's complications and your troubles. He says, be strong, take heart. Wait on the Lord. But central to David's waiting on God was this idea of dwelling in the house of the Lord, like it says in Psalm 27. But that's a repeated theme throughout Psalm 23 all the way through Psalm 30. This idea of coming to the house of God, being in his temple, being in his courts. And that's the second treasure that I want to talk about tonight, simply the centrality of the church. Ephesians 1 verses 20 through 23, it's the message version because I love the way Eugene Peterson puts this. But in Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 23, I think I've only got the end up there, but I'm going to read from verse 20. It says, all this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven. 
in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. Amen. No name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. So when you read that passage, you see that at the center of everything, Christ rules his church. And that's where he moves. That's where he fills everything with his presence. And you realize that I'm not going to be filled fully in this life. I'm not going to experience the fullness of life that Jesus promises if I don't make church where Christ rules the center. If I don't make it a priority. You know, last Sunday, talk about church on Saturday, fill in the blank on Sunday, it was my nephew's birthday party. We went to a Richmond Flying Squirrels baseball game. So we were celebrating their birthday, but one of them, when he was two or three years old, um, my sister and brother-in-law, they've got three nephews, all boys. I think he was about two or three years old when he went up to their bed at some awful hour of the morning that I don't look forward to when I think of having kids. It was like 4 or 4.30, and they were like, hey, Dad, can we get up now? Like, can we play? And my brother-in-law, Chad, said, come back when, when the sun's up. <laughs> come back when the sun has risen. And he came back eventually when the sun had risen, and he said, hey, the sun waked up. The sun waked up. He's ready to play. Can we play? As if the sun had a, a personality, as if the sun serves us when it's up, and then it, it's got to go sleep, and, and it's got to go uh, rest so they can serve us again the next day. It's almost like way back in the day there was this geocentric model to the universe where, you know, you stand on earth, everything seems to be moving around the earth. We don't seem to be rotating and moving through the galaxy at millions of light years, whatever it is per second. But there was once above reproach, infallible belief that we were the center. Everything rotated around us. But there were seven planets in orbit, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, the sun, and the moon, and that they rotated around us. It's one of the reasons when I hear, like, scientific discoveries that, you know, are supposed to disprove God's creation or his existence, I'm like, man, I'm just going to wait five years till when they change their mind. Like, we can't even decide whether Pluto is a planet, right? We'll get to that in a second. But this idea of, of a geocentric model was, was wrong because if anybody knows, hopefully we know, that <laughs> we orbit around the sun, right? But just as earth was created and set in orbit around the sun, you were made a new creation upon repentance and set in orbit around Christ. You know, just as the earth was created by God, set in orbit around the sun, we're called through repentance to, to place Christ and his church at the center and let our lives be placed in orbit, for lack of a better word. But just as brilliant minds and people with the best intentions embrace this geocentric model for the universe, we can embrace a me-centric model to life, if we're honest. We're, we're at the center, and then church or, or, or reading the word or any of the pathways just becomes something we place in orbit with whatever else, our family, with our career, and we just kind of put what's close, what we prioritize the most, and then things further in orbit that we might get to later. But you know, Romans 2.4, Romans 2.4 says, God is kind, but he's not soft. <laughs> Again, this is the message version, but I, I just, God is kind, but he's not soft. 
In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into radical life change. How many of y'all, when you were younger, your mom grabbed you firmly by the arm and led you to some radical life change? Anybody? My mom really wanted to be vicious with it. She, you know, I swear she did it on purpose. Maybe she didn't. The, the wedding ring with the diamond to the inside, grab your arm, that gets your attention. If you grab firmly by the hand like that, she led me to some radical life change a couple times. But in the same way, God is kind. My mother's a kind individual, but she wasn't soft. In the same way, God is kind, but he's not soft. And this phrase, radical life change. Have you changed radically since you encountered the grace of God? Has there been a radical life change? If there hasn't, then you might be living a me-centric faith. And in this me-centric faith, Christ and the church, it's peripheral to our world. We just place it somewhere out there in orbit. And we might think, man, I'm never going to lose my faith or I'll never stop attending, but it's just not a priority right now. And, and I'll just let it orbit out there in the midst of all my other priorities and I'll get to it eventually. Invest later. That's what I told myself all throughout my teenage years. And I suffered for it. In reality, though, we read Ephesians where Christ is at the center with the church. And we realize that just how we orbit the sun Christ is at the center of everything, whether we realize it or not. He's on the throne, whether we realize it or not. And we want to fake like we have some kind of power and control in life. Whether we realize it or not, Christ is at the center. And we're simply embracing it as the center or not. We're either making it a priority or distancing ourselves from it. You look at, at Pluto, the planet. It's so small in mass and so far in its orbit that experts have gone back and forth on whether it's even a planet. Because when you start to say, okay, Pluto is a planet, they've discovered other things that are orbiting the sun so far out that are that size or maybe even a little bigger. And like, well, if Pluto is a planet, we got to regard all these other things as planets. And I'm not going to go all the way onto that rabbit trail and lose my place. But if you place yourself spiritually in your faith, far enough from the church and the community of faith, you can begin to lose distinguishing characteristics as a disciple or follower. Because you don't have the relationship, the accountability, the, the fellowship that you're called to in the word, the provoking one another to good deeds. You just miss out on that. Don't be a Pluto spiritually. Don't be a Pluto in your faith because sometimes orbits can be lost altogether. In 2012, they discovered the first homeless planet apparently had been knocked out of orbit, free-floating, and to me it's like, is, is that a planet or is that a space station, right? <laughs> That's no moon. That's a space station. Sorry, that's a Star Wars reference. But this thing is floating through outer space. It's cold. It's relatively young compared to other planets. It's massive. It's seven times the size of Jupiter, and it's just wandering, floating through space. And it was a pretty big discovery because scientists could actually study this planet because it's hard to find. Sorry, it's hard to find because it doesn't put off any light, hardly reflects any light, so they could actually study this. Because the reality is when you look at other faraway planets, they're orbiting around a star. And scientists will tell you that it's hard to study them because they're enveloped in the light of the star that they're orbiting. In the same way, our lives should be so closely tied to Christ and his church that it's impossible to miss. We're not called to just wander through space, dark, not, not hardly noticed. We're called to reflect the light of Christ. We're called to reflect by being in his church and being tightly knit with his church, the love of God. Now, whether that analogy worked or not, my bottom line is this. Sanctification should not lead to isolation. We're called to place ourselves in orbit, close to Christ's body, 
where it says in Ephesians that he speaks and acts and fills everything with his presence. Another analogy that might hit the target a little better is I was reading Romans 12 yesterday where it talks about the church as a body and how, you know, if, if I lost my hand and you found my hand, you could study my hand, look at my hand, but just because you know my hand, you don't, you don't know me. There's a lot of people where that's the extent of what they know of the church, where it might be them and <laughs> them and four buddies, right? Get together at church's chicken and call it church or, or get together wherever and, and talk about Christ, talk about their pursuit of Christ. But when you do life with, say, however many, four people who think like you, have the same perspective as you, do the same things you do, you rarely grow. You'll rarely grow in your comfort zone. But you get around people that think differently than you, have, dare I say, a little more wisdom than you, have been through life that you haven't, then it'll shape your perspective, it'll shift your paradigm, and you'll begin to grow. But when we put that kind of fellowship on the back burner, or we put the church out on the periphery, we'll rarely step into those relationships. And I think one reason why we, we give up on that is, is we can't find the quote-unquote perfect church. But like I said last week, find one, don't go in it, because as soon as me or you step into it, it's not perfect anymore, because we're not perfect. And churches are full of imperfect people who need Jesus. You know, look for a safe church. You know what a safe church is? A place where you can be authentic. A place where you can say, hey, I'm a sinner in need of grace. That's a safe church. Because we all have weaknesses, and too often we try to hide them. And there's this out-of-place culture in church where, you know, if somebody asks you how you're doing in Starbucks or even in the lobby, you can say good. But there's some people in your life where when they ask you how you're doing, it shouldn't always be good, good, good. Like as if, if you're struggling that you have to hide that. Or if you're, if you're struggling in an area, you can't tell anybody. As if only being perfect glorifies God. We worry as if the evidence of imperfect people would hurt the church, when in reality, the presence of imperfect people is why we need the church. The, the very reality that churches are full of imperfect people is why we need to not give up on church, because it's in church where community stimulates transformation, it stimulates growth. The church is huge and central to the work of Christ because community quickens growth. You get in a room with people that think different than you, smarter than you, will challenge you, will encourage you, will speak life into you. That'll spark growth. So don't be a Pluto. <laughs> don't place yourself at such a distance from where Christ is moving that you miss your mark or you miss your distinguishing characteristics where people can't even, is this a planet or not? Is this a, a follower of Christ or not? It's sad when people want to pursue a life in God, but they never make it past the periphery, the outside. They take a step in from the the community, into the neighborhood crowd, but they, they never truly get in, invested. You know, In-N-Out makes for good fast food and a good burger, but In-N-Out does not make for a, a healthy faith. Just stepping in and out of church on the weekend, keeping any places we're struggling in our back pocket and hoping nobody notices. We're called to more. And if you just think about the church, you can look at it this way. There's the community, the place, the region around us. There's the crowd, the people that meet at any given weekend, at any church. And then there's the committed, those that have committed to following Christ, being a part of the church. And there's the core, the people that serve, that through their blood, sweat, and tears, the church happens week in and week out. And we're not called to simply take hold of the crowd and hope to hang on. Fullness of life that God has for us is in a life of commitment. Steph is a 
big HGTV fiend. That's why she buys lockers and puts them in her house because that's in now. Anybody else watch a lot of HGTV? Yeah, I mean, that whole genre, that whole uh, style brand of TV, it's reaching a saturation point. I get on Netflix, there's about 40 different options. But there's long been a show called Love It or List It. Love It or List It. Anybody? That's not one of my favorites. I don't, the hosts, I'm not really a big fan of. But that phrase, Love It or List It, that should begin to shape the way we think about the church. Love it or list it. Because I would challenge you, if you aren't passionate for church, then stop going for a time. Because that will remind you why you need it. That will remind you why you can't go without it. Because God's not looking for passing interest. He's looking for passionate commitment. Because there's a difference between being interested in something and truly committing to something. When you're interested in doing something, you only do it when circumstance permits. Like, I'll do it when I feel like it. I'll do it when I have time. And you know those are just excuses for saying, I'm never going to do this. Because you're interested, but you're not really committed. But when you're committed to something, you accept no excuses, only results. Because you're committed. That's why God isn't looking for involvement. He's looking for commitment. Because God is smart. He knows our tendency we have throughout our lives is that we get involved, but not necessarily committed. Think about what happens every January 1st. People join a gym. This is how gyms make their money because by March, 90% of those people don't even remember how to get to the gym, right? Maybe if they listened to Creed while they lifted, they'd have a better time. But uh, <laughs> you think about people that show up to work and, and, and maybe they're focused for a little bit. They do what's asked. They do what's necessary, but then they check out mentally. Or people that are, are in relationships, they involve themselves in relationships, but they never step to an altar and make an actual commitment. They're interested, but not committed. There's a writer uh, Tom Rayner, who says the concept of an inactive church member is an oxymoron. Biblically, no such church member really exists. You know, in your life in the church, there's, there's different ways you'll be defined. You might be defined as a, a consumer in the house of God, but you might be described as somebody who's consumed with zeal for the house of God. If I had a choice between the two, I want to be the person that's consumed with zeal for the house of God. There's things that we're called to consume. You know, I, I go to churches sometimes on Sunday night so I can just sit in a service and receive and consume and worship and hear a word. There's times where we need to consume, but I want to, if it defines my life, I want to be defined as be consumed for the house of God. David says in Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. Another translation says, it's eaten me up. <laughs> David in Psalm 27, again, the verse we read, he says, this one thing do I seek, speaking of priority. All else can wait to pursue God in his temple to pursue his presence. You know, David was passionate about the presence of God. He wanted to build a temple, and by God's will, he got all the supplies needed, all the funds needed for Solomon to successfully build that temple. And, you know, we plant these campuses. We lay this foundation so that those youth and kid life tearing around right now, just balls of kinetic energy, can one day go further than we did can one day experience moves of God that we only thought about. Can they, they can experience exceedingly and abundantly above what we would even plan for them. The same way David laid this foundation for Solomon to experience God in the temple because he has a heart and a passion for a move of God. And I, I know the statistics and, and the people that say, well, you know, the church is, is suffering now, or, you know, there are churches that are closing, or they'll just rattle off statistics, and the average church attendance is X or Y, and, and it's dwindling, but I serve a God who said that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. You know, I serve Jesus, who, he, he was so passionate about his church, the temple, and where people worshiped, that 
people quoted this verse by David, that zeal for his house consumed him. It says in Ephesians 1 that Jesus sits at the center of it all, ruling his church, where he fills everything with his presence. Come on, we need to be a people that are passionate for the centrality of the church. And then lastly, again, I'm not going to hit on it lengthy tonight. I'm about to close, but there's the potential of people. The potential of people. It's the third old treasure or greatest hit here at City Life. And in Ephesians 2.10, it says, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, that verse speaks to incredible potential. You talk about HGTV and, and what's trendy now, this whole idea of, of handmade. Like, there's an added value if it's handmade. It's not something that's made in a factory like Etsy took off because it's all, you know, handmade stuff that you can purchase. There's value in something that's handcrafted. For instance, Stradivarius violins. One day people will be talking about Kenny Marshall guitars like this, but Stradivarius violins. If you have a model that's inspired by him, it's worth a couple hundred bucks. But an original handcrafted Stradivarius violin what year was it? In 2011, it was auctioned off for $15 million because he made this violin by hand. There was value. How much more value do we have because we were made by the hand of God? That were his handiwork, were handcrafted by God. And, and in our culture, you know, they would tell you that, that we're a mass-produced, massive humanity that came from chance. And based on that, we don't have any ultimate meaning or purpose. It's no wonder that we suffer as a culture from feelings of of meaninglessness, but when you lay hold of the fact that each one of us were handcrafted by God, we begin to realize the value, not just of us, but every person we pass every day and how much God cares for them. And then Ephesians 2.10 goes on to say that we're handmade to do good works. Again, the favor of our purpose. You're loaded with potential energy. Potential. Potential and kinetic energy. I don't remember much science from school, but I remember that. For somehow that, that stuck with me. Again, potential energy is energy stored within a substance waiting to be released. It's just like as, as a coiled spring. I hope that's a good illustration. Wayne's going to have to catch me up afterwards. Or kinetic energy, on the other hand, is it's active energy. It's found in detonated atomic bombs or small children, right, back there in the nursery. But if we file faith away as an intellectual pursuit and nothing more, we miss out on the potential that's in us. Come on, we need an active faith. And we need to, in our church to challenge people to have an active faith. And again, we'll dig deeper into that next week. But if I could close and have the worship team come up. Again, Ephesians 1 said, Christ is at the center where he speaks and acts and fills everything with his presence. I want my life to be there <laughs> where he's going to fill me. He's going to speak into my life. I'm going to see him moving on my behalf. And the Bible says in Ephesians 1, you find that in God's church. And we also need to recognize this command that he gave his church to go. It's the Great Commission. It's not a great recommendation. It was a commission. It was a call. It was a command. But we've said it before. This call to go isn't always a call to leave. You know, when the, the man called Legion had all those demons cast, I was like, God, I want, Jesus, I want to go with you. And he said, no, go home. Reach those people. Sometimes our call to reach starts within our reach. It says he reached 10 cities. Think of all the cities we're close to. Carrollton, Smithfield, Portsmouth, Chesapeake, Suffolk right here, right over the bridge, so many more. He reached 10 cities because he simply went home, a place within his reach, and began to share what Christ had done. Your neighborhood, kids' soccer fields, your workplace, the break room at your workplace, your neighborhood. These are places within our reach that 
we can reach. But you know what's great about the church? Nate was sharing it even at the offering, that through the church, giving to the church, our reach expands. And tonight as we close, out there at the information center on your way out, you'll see these pamphlets. They're uh, Food for the Hungry pamphlets, sponsorships for, for kids. We've been to this village. I love how Food for the Hungry works because they choose a village. You pour into that village for 10 years by sponsoring kids. We build uh, latrines. We're working towards building a water filtration system, but we invest in that community. We sponsor those kids. We're trying to sponsor every kid in that community as our own here at City Life. We go and visit, and, and I remember Greg gave me a box for his girl, and we were able to hand it to her and say, hey, this is from your sponsor. She wrote a handwritten note back to them saying thank you. But just this idea that we're investing in every one of those lives passionately because there's potential in those lives. Not only to spark a, a, a physical revival, which, which they need as they transform that community, but a spiritual revival. The gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a pastor there that visits every now and again. I think every six weeks holds a service. But as we raise these kids up, pour into their lives, sponsor them. Come on, God can move in crazy ways that we wouldn't just be able to do if we were off on our own. But through Food for the Hungry and those pamphlets you can pick up out there. Our goal, I think we've got 10 that through the three campuses we're trying to get sponsored so that we can keep sponsoring every kid in this village. So if you don't, if you want to double down, there's a kid named Saul. I'm waiting. I think he's too young. As soon as he comes up, he's mine. So if you know, you know that. When his sponsorship packet comes up, you take it. I'm fighting you for it. But come on, let's fight each other for those packets out there to be able to invest in those lives and the potential that's in them. Because revival, whether it's their village or our city, it's our call. But we can't do it if we don't believe in the, the goodness of God. And we can't do it if we place his goodness and where he lives and moves the church on the periphery. So maybe tonight, if we could all stand as we go back into worship, come on, we're going to sing, It Is Well. And maybe right now it's hard to sing those words. It's hard to say it is well because you feel distant, you feel dry, you feel down. And maybe it's not even your priorities. Maybe it's not even anything you're doing. It's your circumstances. Things are happening where life's been tough. And you just need to experience the goodness of God. You need to experience his move in a new way. You need a new taste of God's goodness in his presence. Then as we go back into worship, come on, I encourage you to enter in. But there's also perhaps you feel distant, you feel dry because you've placed God, the church, kind of at arm's length. Kind of not really a priority, but it's something you'll come back to now and again. Whether you need to, to spark a shift in your priorities, you need to spark a shift in your perspective and remind yourself of the goodness of God. I just encourage you, whatever that shift is, sometimes you make a shift physically and it, and it reminds you of the shift you need to make in your heart. So whether it's moving your feet, stepping into the aisle, the altar, or raising your hands, shifting your hands, shifting your eyes to the ceiling, whatever it might be, come on, let's physically express our love for Jesus in these moments as we worship. If your heart says, seek his face, come on, let's answer. Let's answer in our worship. It is well. It is well. Seas that are shaken and stirred. 